Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. So today, guys, we are rewinding pretty far into the past, but not as far into the past as we have been rewinding this week. We're going back to February the 16th of 2010. So we're, we're going back, uh, what, you know, eight years here. And uh, this was episode 379, How Taxation Enslaves Society. And I was trying to decide whether I really wanted this to be our rewind today, because this week... Our Rewind shows have focused on hard actions, growing food, transferring your home into a homestead, things like that. And this is more of a, a somewhat political topic because we're talking about taxation, which you, it's almost impossible to separate your thoughts on taxation from some form of body politic. But I, what I've found is that people have different motivations for starting to take actions. And many of the actions that we take do reduce what I call your tax footprint. Entrepreneurship, um, just getting a good CPA instead of doing your, your, your taxes on a postcard like Donald Trump says you'll be able to do starting next year, etc. Um, you know, there's a reason you fill out those long forms. I'll tell you why you fill out the long forms. If they, if, if you're the type of person with a lifestyle that it works for. Because the tax code, even the new one that's supposedly highly simplified, is thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And a couple dozen of them are what you have to do, and the rest of them are how you get out of it. I mean, I, I really want you to think about that. That's the majority of the tax code isn't what you have to pay taxes on. It's how do you avoid or reduce paying taxes? How do you get a deduction for this? How do you set this? Like, that's, that's why it's complicated. Because it was written by lawyers who don't want to pay taxes. So they wrote in loopholes for themselves that they knew most of you wouldn't take the time or care to figure out and understand. So just a good CPA and, 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 and doing a few things and structuring a few things so that you create deductions that otherwise wouldn't exist alone can put money in your pocket. And then when you want to go out and build that garden or you want to do that project or you want to take a shot at something and you need money, you have more money to work with. Just putting money into your retirement, as I said in another episode this week, uh, or it's, actually I didn't say it in an episode this week, but it's, it's part of what I'm going to tell people up at Free State Project. People think entrepreneurship only means, you know, people like me that earn a full-time living, or even people with a substantial part-time living as an entrepreneur. Well, let me explain the power of entrepreneurship, and I'll explain the, the, how that directly applies to the power of savings on your income tax. So what if we have a guy that listens to Jack Spear go talk about Biltong. And so one day he goes out, he goes down to the store, he buys some beef, he makes some Biltong. He goes, you know what? This shit's really good. I like this. I wonder if my friends would like this. So instead of just, you know, giving a big old stick of it, he, he puts it on a slicer, he slices it up, he comes up with some different seasonings that really make it enjoyable, and he, he presents it more like a, like a prosciutto ham type presentation rather than just this stick to some of his friends. And his friends go, holy shit, that's really good. You need more of that? And he says, you know what, I'm going to start selling bags, you have to do the numbers, I don't know, for X dollars a bag. And his friends go like, yeah, I'll take two bags of that. 
And he builds up a little customer group, and he spends a couple hours a week making biltong, which he enjoys doing because he likes to do it. And it comes out to where he makes a whopping profit of $100 a month. That's all he makes. He makes $100 a month, and he eats all his biltong for free. And because it's kind of an under-the-table business, he doesn't even take deductions off it because it's just going to result in a small profit in the end that he's going to have to pay taxes on. So this is this is money is between him, his friends, and the biltong fence post. All right? And let's say our young friend is 25 years old when he makes this remarkable discovery that he can make himself $100 a month. And over the years, he might, you know, wear out the biltong thing, but he just figures out, like, with a little side hustle, I can make $100 a month of basically found money and get something, I'm reloading ammo and selling it to my friends, and I get my ammo for free. You know, that type of thing. And he just makes a commitment. In my life, I will spend one to two hours a week, my entire life until I retire, with my little hobby side hustles, making $100 a month. And let's say that our friend, while seeming responsible for this decision, is like, that's it. That's I'll have a little bit of savings here and there for emergencies and all, but I'm not saving any other money for my retirement. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna save a hundred dollars a month that I'm gonna make from a side hustle, and I'm gonna basically do whatever the hell I want with my money and be completely irresponsible otherwise. If he just puts that hundred hundred bucks into a Roth IRA with standard investing strategy, achieving eleven percent over that period of time is a cakewalk. Uh, yes, if the economy burns up in flames, that might not be true. But in general, and as a historical guide for a hundred years, this is so doable with just good ETFs and mutual funds and individual stocks. And that's all he does is sock that hundred bucks in there and, and set up basic investments and let it grow. At 65, do you know how much money he has? Do you have any idea? The answer would be $774,000. $774,000. Okay, so let's look at it just a different way. I'm going to make sure that I figure out how to save an extra $1,200 a year on my income tax, and I'm going to invest that into my retirement. Same money, same result. And assuming you're doing something else, let's say that you, you got $100 out of your entrepreneurship, and you got $100 out of your savings of your taxes. And at 25, you decided you're going to be a good little aunt and listen to Jack and just put $200 a month into your retirement account. And you're going to say, I'm going to cut the interest rate that I'm going to earn down to 10%. I'm going to be even more conservative. Uh, you're going to retire at 65 with $1.168 million from that. Do, do you understand why I'm so big on these topics of economics? Because it's this simple little strategy. It's this simple little strategy. It's coming up with a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, three hundred bucks, five hundred bucks, whatever it is you can come up with. By the way, if, uh, if you really busted your ass and, um, decided by 25 you were going to start putting away, uh, four hundred dollars into a Roth IRA and, um, You're going to retire as early as you possibly can. Let's say 60. Your your return on this is is almost mind-boggling with that. 1.5 million by the age of 60, with 400 a month from age 25, and not doing anything else for your retirement. And when we start looking at taxation, and we realize well what we're promised 
from all the money that they take from us in the form of Social Security, the matching payments, our income tax, etc., when the majority of our services are actually funded with things like the roads, right? Well, that's gas taxes, right? Our schools, well, that's property taxes. There's other taxes for almost, almost every other service that you obtain from government is paid with something other than income tax. If you look at the, the personal income tax receipts of the United States government and our debt, our new debt every year and the interest on it, our income tax exists primarily to fund the debt the government has. Everything else is provided from something else. And when you realize that and you realize, well, what's being taken from the average person a year? Let's say the average person is spending on their total income tax, uh, all their taxes that they pay to the federal government, $1,000 a month. If you had that money back starting at the age of 65 and put it away in a Roth IRA until you were 59 and a half, which is the earliest age you can start withdrawing from those Roth IRAs, you'd retire with $3.2 million. Instead, you're going to get an $800 to $1,200 Social Security check and be used as a pawn by government to explain why we need to keep doing this asininity. I mean, you, you understand how broke the system is. And this is why it's important to understand how broke the system is. For I tell you, I'm going to play you something from a movie called Network. This came out in 1976. You can hear history rhyming here big time. But... I want you to listen to the conclusion that the actor comes to. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radios and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Okay, I don't know what to tell you what to do, but the thing that I know is you have to, at first, get mad. See, I think anger can be very destructive in our lives, and it can be very motivational. When you see the absolute theft that is government taxation. When you see the way it strips families of wealth and it strips families of stability, when you really accept 
that taxing someone's productivity and property is theft. Even if you don't believe all taxation is theft, to tax their productivity and their property is theft. It absolutely, I mean, there are other ways we can do taxes that I don't agree with you, but you could make a compelling, reasonable argument to me that I would at least consider as being well thought out, this isn't theft because. Okay? But when you talk, tax somebody's house, and when you tax somebody's income, and tax their productivity and their property, it is a direct theft. And these illustrations I gave you of what that amount of money taken from people simply invested to their own ends would provide them. You see that we should have a nation where the average person retires as a multimillionaire. Instead, we have a nation where the average person retires on a, on a stipend from government of $800 to $1,200, and then again, they are used. Every time somebody says we need to cut entitlements, cut it, they bring out some you know, 88-year-old lady in a wheelchair and say, you hate these people. I, I don't hate them, but I don't want to create more people in this situation. Well, the thing is, you're not going to change that system. So you ba damn well better learn to work it. And take back every bit you can, and take some pieces of that that you're taking back and invest it in yourself. Invest it in your family, invest it in your future, invest it in your children and your grandchildren. But first, for most people to do this with meaningful action, first, you've got to get at least a little bit mad. Because there's people that think, well, I invest well, and they do. But there's, there's more money that they could take back from government. When I used to teach sales, I used to teach a philosophy to the salespeople that I would train. Never leave money sitting on the table. That customer is placing an order for 10 units. What else can you offer them today? Not like a shyster, not like a used car salesman. Hey, I'm sitting here with a distributor. They just bought 10 testers for five grand a piece. Clearly, money's not a problem. Is there anything else we can help you with? Don't leave the money on the table. Right? Because they're like, well, I don't know that we need any more test gear, but you know, here's one of the things. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know what? We have a solution for that. Or you don't even have a solution for it. You're like, I got this guy that I have a contact with. I think he can help you with that. And I just increase my value, and I'm going to get more business because of that. Don't leave the money on the table. Well, when there's ways that you could pay less taxes, it's worse. It's worse than leaving money on the table because you're empowering government to further your own enslavement. First, you got to get mad. Well, hopefully you'll get mad and action out of today's show. You know, and there, there's something near the end of this episode that made me almost not want to play it. And I realize if you're going to go back and, and talk about what you said in the past and you're going to still point to the value in it, you also have to point to your mistakes. So at this point in my walk politically, I still very much believed in fixing the system on some level, to some degree, through national politics, which I, I now find to be just fool's errand and folly. That if you're going to be involved, you really have to focus on the local level. And I always believed that was the better path, but things like calling your congressmen and your senators at the national level doesn't really work. Um, we've been ignored countless times over things uh, like that, even with massive populist uh, response. They've either not done things that the people wanted them to do or they've done things people didn't want them to do and you'll hear me at this point actually say something I'm I'm almost even a little bit embarrassed about and that is 
if you won't call your congressman a couple times a year, or maybe once a month, that you're a crappy American. And don't get offended by it. Just fix it. That was a real mistake. And I think one of the things that's made this show better is by not doing it in my car so that I'm sitting here agitated by a bunch of idiots around me and trying not to get killed on the way to a, a job I really didn't want to work anymore. I, I think a little bit more, you know, uh, when it comes to uh, to what I say. And I put a little bit more thought into it. And this was a direct result of not really thinking, being angry, and wanting something done. So even though in the intro here I've talked about you've got to get mad, but you got to take a proper channel of your anger. And it makes me think of something of a discussion I had recently on Facebook that went like this. But Jack, small actions matter. And my response to that was, small actions matter if they're effective and or meaningful. And large actions matter if they're effective and or meaningful. And, and the way that we really get things done in the world today is by going out and making something happen and, and making something happen in our life. Asking someone else to do it for us doesn't really seem to work anymore in the current system. But there's a part of me that looks back at this this Jack Spierko from, what is it, nine years ago, eight years ago, and wishes I could still believe these things would work. Part of me looks around and thinks, well, maybe they can, and part of me thinks, no, they can't. And the reality is, they can. But the change must first come at the individual level. Because the thing that I say in this podcast that's so true is most of us that are liberty-minded, we have deluded ourselves into believing the majority of people want freedom and liberty. And they don't. So the problem isn't that the republic as designed cannot function. It's for the republic to function as designed, the people themselves must crave liberty above security. They must crave the ability to seek wealth more than they do the ability to be granted somebody else's wealth. And we can't change those people by in the mentality of the nation by changing out our senators and congressmen. It's like changing out the teeth of a shark and expecting the next row of teeth to make the shark a different animal. If you want to change the system for the better, we have to change the people. And we do that far greater through individual actions, and taking control of our individual lives. So I've left that in there, and I've run this episode. And to anybody that feels like they've been punched in the nose by it in the past or in the present, as you hear it again, I apologize. We all learn, we evolve, we make changes. It's a lesson I've tried to teach myself over the years. Again, we are rewinding all the way back to episode 379, February 16, 2010, How Taxation Enslaves Society. So let's go ahead and get on to the topic of today's show, taxation and how it actually over time destroys a society. Um, the first thing we have to really understand, if we're going to look at this, is that it's a nonpartisan issue. This isn't Republicans are for smaller government and less taxes and their rights of vote Republican. It is so far from that, it is unbelievable. Because we have a constant in the last 110 years in our country. There's only one constant as it pertains to taxation and government spending. The two numbers have universally gone up, unhinged, nonstop, for 110 years now. Every president, Republican and Democrat, has risen spending. Every president, Republican and Democrat, 
as was in taxation. You will see examples where so-and-so cut this tax or so-and-so cut this spending tax. But you have to look at the government's tactics when it comes to economics like a big balloon. And I don't mean one that swells up and pops, though we could draw that analogy as well. What I mean is if I have a great big balloon, like a big, uh, long, like a balloon you make a balloon animal out of, right? And I squeeze one in, and I say I've reduced the air in the balloon. All that happens is the other end of the balloon swells up. That's what the government does, both with spending and taxes. They cut a program, but then they allocate more total spending every year. The budget has never gone down. Our government has never spent less money as we've gone forward in time, ever, except for a very brief period of time during the Truman administration after World War II when we had such a big ramp up that came back down and then we ran away again. Now, this is not Harry Truman was a great guy. There was a certain amount of ramping up that had to be ramped down after World War II. And as soon as we got into the highway business, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, that spending started to climb back up again. And that's a constant, and it's true. So when I talk about taxation, those of you that think I'm a typical right-winger, I don't know where you get that from with some of my social positions. This is not about party, political affiliation, or changing elections. Because I honestly believe, and I can look at you with a straight face and tell you, and I don't care who you put in power, they're going to continue to piss our money away on things we don't want, and they're going to continue to tax us in ways that we don't like. So I hope that's clear. The next thing we have to look at is how much do Americans really pay in tax? And how do some of these uh, shenanigans and money movement games occur? Let's look at a president that's widely known as a president that cut spending and cut taxes. Ronald Reagan, the great conservative president, the great modern era president. And not everything Reagan did was bad, but a lot of things that people perceive about Reagan are untrue. One, Reagan did not cut spending. Reagan cut programs. The government spent more money every year that he was in office than they did the year before. Period. Done. Reagan cut some taxes, but created the biggest tax increase in the history of America up to that point by raising the percentage of taxation on Social Security. And was given credit for saving the program. I kind of wish he hadn't saved the program. We wouldn't be burdened with it today. I know some of you think I'm heartless for that. We'll get to why Social Security is a bad thing eventually today. Don't worry. There's a reason the thing needs to be put to death. And not overnight. And those of you that think I'm saying, let's cut the old people off. Knock the shit off. And every time somebody talks about reforming Social Security, they wheel out an 88-year-old in a wheelchair and go, this poor lady, come on. You think anybody's really saying, stop helping her out? No, but we got to wean people off of the system over time. The older, the more they get. The younger, the less they get. But Reagan blew off Social Security as far as the percentage that was charged. In fact, here's what Ronald Reagan, the great tax cut artist, did. Okay, again, understanding that Social Security tax is paid by two people, you and your employer. Whatever your employer uh, pays your, uh, 
or whatever you pay, your employer matches. So if you paid five thousand in Social Security um, last year, your employer paid five thousand in Social Security last year. Well, looking at the tax rate charge from SocialSecurity.gov office in nineteen eighty two, total contributions into Social Security were nine point three percent, nine point three five zero percent. By nineteen eighty four, under Reagan, the total contributions went to fourteen percent. Say that again, from 9.350% to 14%. By 1988, when Reagan finally left office, total contributions were about 15%. So Ronald Reagan increased taxes at the same time he was getting credit for tax cuts. There's a lot of other things that we could go into about taxation under Reagan. I don't want to beat Ronald Reagan up there. Some of you guys really like the guy, and I, I don't have all bad things to say. I just want to point out, it doesn't matter who's in power, taxes go up, even when you think they're going down. George Bush II, great cutter of taxes for the wealthy and the middle class. And I got a tax cut. Right? I should be the guy that says, hey, look, George Bush cut my taxes. Because in 2001 and 2002, I got tax cuts. Got some of my own money back. Felt good to get some of my own money back. What was going on? George Bush was raising the cap of Social Security taxation. It's the great boogeyman, Social Security taxation. It's the one that steals from you, and you don't know it. Because half of the money it steals, you never even see. You don't know it's there. Go work for yourself. Go work for yourself. Go be a self-employed, independent contractor that doesn't have an employer paying Social Security taxes for you. And you'll find out real quick how it's 15% instead of roughly 7 so what's the cap have to do with This is how Social Security taxes work. Again, most Americans are simply unaware of this. There's a cap, not on how much you pay, but on how much earnings are taxed. So at one time, long, long ago, the cap was about $78,000. And what that meant is if I made $78,000, I paid Social Security taxes. If I self-employed both sides, if I was employed, my employer paid half on all $78,000. If I made $78,001 in a year, I paid zero Social Security tax on the dollar, and so did my employer. So if I made $50,000 over the $78,000, all of that $50,000 was free and clear of the Social Security taxation system. George Bush raised that ceiling, amounting to the largest increase in taxation in modern times. It's not about beating up George Bush. Bill Clinton raised taxes. We saw it happen. Okay? George Bush the first raised taxes. We saw the consequences of doing that after he said, read my lips, no new taxes. Jimmy Carter raised taxes. Ronald Reagan raised taxes. The point is, they all did it. That's the problem with taxation. Now I want you to understand the root of the problem. The root of the problem is people go into government today that's far too large. It's far too big. It's far too, it's far too complicated. It's involved in far too many levels of people's lives. It's too intrusive. And if this sounds like the Republicans' marketing spin, it kind of is. They just don't live up to it. I don't care who's in power, we have the same problem. Now why does this happen? Because the government believes that its purpose is to solve problems for people. So, if you create an entity that has an unrestricted capacity to both tax and spend, and has the ability, when it runs out of money, to just make more out of thin air, 
through our Federal Reserve Fractional Reserve System. Has the ability to manipulate the economy so the wealthiest people can make tons of money and keep them in power. If you create that system, what else can you expect but abuse, even when it's, let's say, abuse that's not intended? But the person really thinks they can fix things. If you look for problems, there's always problems. We cannot have a utopia. The problem with large governments and tax schemes within them is that the government then sees it as a mandate, we must use the money of the people to solve the problems of the people. Now, I want you to take a little um, time travel trip in your head for me today. And I want you to go back to the American Revolution and the days leading up to the American Revolution, the days just after the American Revolution. And I want you to see in your mind's eye our founders, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Paul Revere. I want you to see them all. I want you to think about the kind of men they were. Patrick Henry. John Jay. Think about these men. Now, I want you to think about them. And do you think when they founded this nation, they ever got together and said, hey, I'll tell you what. If we would just create a federal republic where every man's voice was heard, but there were checks and balances to control the growth of that government. If we created a system where people could do as they pleased, as long as they didn't interfere with the rights of others, where private property was respected, regardless of the station in life of the person who owned it. If we just created that, then we could tax that system and solve everybody's problems. That's worth dying for. I'm willing to commit acts of high treason to create a system so we could solve everybody's problems. Do you think that's what this was all about? But your government today believes that that's exactly what it was all about. To make sure that the poor are not poor. There should be no poor. How's that working out? How many people in this country are poor? Have we reduced poverty in this country in the last 50 years? We've increased it. We played around with the welfare system so there's less people on it. We just cha changed the type of assistance they were getting. Before welfare reform, there were like 12 million people on welfare. Today, there's like 2.8 million people on welfare. Look, it worked. But you know what? Now we have 30 million people on food stamps. 30 million. We moved people from a welfare system to a system that provided them food and government housing. What's the difference? What's the difference if you give somebody a welfare check and they pay to live in projects, or you give them projects to live in where they pay 20 bucks, and you give them food stamps to feed themselves? The money's still getting spent the same way. The poverty is still being sustained. We've created sustainable poverty. We have not done anything to eliminate poverty through taxation. We've made poverty sustainable, and what did we get? What do you get when you make something sustainable? You get more. So by making poverty sustainable, we've gotten more poverty. Shocking. Now, what does this do when it's pushed into a system that is built on taxing the people? It creates new problems. Then the people that we send to government go, I'm here to solve the problems. Poverty's a problem. So they make poverty more sustainable 
And we get more poverty, which creates more problems. We get this unending cycle. But what we have to realize is that there's a limit to what any system can be harvested. We are looked at by our government as a herd. We're a herd of people. Maybe a herd of sheeple. And maybe in some ways they're not wrong about the way the average person thinks, acts, and does. But we're viewed as a herd. If you doubt that, when swine flu was going around, the term that they used to describe a lack of ability to fight it because it was a new disease, it's a lack of herd immunity. When referring to the general public, we lack herd immunity. We're seen as a herd. We're like a crop to be harvested. We're like milk cows. Give them a field, warm sun, things to eat, and you know, every day go out and suck milk out of their udders. There's a limit to how much milk you can take from a cow before you begin to damage the cow to a point that it can no longer produce milk. Or it figures to hell with it. It's not worth producing milk. I don't get to feed my calf with any, and its system begins to shut down. And they'll look at other countries and say, well, these people are taxed even higher than us, so how can we be close to our limit? Because our system's not made to work the way their system's made to work. You know, I hear about how wonderful it is over in Denmark, where they pay like 70% taxes, and how everybody has a beautiful place to live. And then they show you one, and it's about as big as my office and my living room for their whole house with three kids to live in. But they're so happy. You know what? I don't want to live that way. And our system's not set up to live that way. Our system was set up to be a place for pioneers. Not for serfs. Not for robots. And not for a herd of people. It was set up to be the place, the one place, that people could come to and make something of themselves, for themselves, and keep whatever it is that they made. Taxation has destroyed that. Is the antithesis of it. But what happens with taxation? And this is the real danger. And this is why I brought it up as a survival topic today. To understand. Is a government that grows too large becomes unsustainable. So while they're sitting around making poverty sustainable, they're making their own business model unsustainable. As they get bigger and bigger and bigger. The only way a government can grow is through the acquisition of people. Every time the government creates a new program, or if the government creates jobs, when the government creates jobs, they do it in the government sector. So they take people out of the private sector, they pull them inside of their system, which produces nothing. Now, you can say the government's uh, wage earners are taxed, and they are. But where does the government get its money? It doesn't produce anything and sell it. It pulls it out of the general population into the government, pays it back to its worker, and then taxes it on the other end. It's still a scam. It's still creating money out of thin air, but it limits what can be done. And every time they pull more people into the government, they take more people out of the productive capacity. And there's a limit to how many people that you can pull in. And you have to understand that about 30 million in this, people in this country don't produce anything. By the very fact that they don't work, they don't produce anything. 
Some of them are good people that can't find a job right now. Some of them are lazy-ass people living off of you and me. And there's a whole spectrum in between those two. But they don't produce anything. Even though they're not in the government, they're just provided for by the government. Then we have 100 million people or more that are directly employed by government that produce nothing. I mean, when you look on the surface, it looks low. Okay, there's, uh, I believe there's about officially 11 million government jobs out there. 2007 statistics is what I remember. Which is about 7% of all jobs in the United States are people that work directly either for the government, post office, military enlisted, military officers, state governments, and local governments. But those numbers exclude Education and hospitalization. They don't include the person that works for the Veterans Administration. Okay, and, and they say, well, the Veterans Administration provides care for a soldier, but they don't provide a productive service that generates income from outside the closed-loop system of government. It's funded by the pockets of the people who work in society. It's not that it's bad. I'm not for taking away veteran care. God, anybody that listens to the show should know that. But it's still a fact. So if we call that a necessary piece, it's still a piece. Education. Where does the money for education come from? Federal taxes, property taxes. Mostly it's those two. Some states lie and say the lottery helps out. It's complete fabrication we won't go into today. So if we add up all the people that work in hospitalization, Veterans Administration, and education. Now what percentage of the American people are actually employed by government taxation? And then if we start looking at all the service people that work in, in things that supply services to government. So the guy might be independently employed, but what he does is he runs a company to provide janitorial services for schools. Now, I'm not putting the guy down. I'm not saying he's not productive. But... From a monetary, exclusively a monetary standpoint, all his company does is generate revenue from a government entity which gets its money from the people that it taxes. And then you start to realize that if we really are honest with ourselves, we're approaching a point where probably close to half of America is going to end up being employed by or either directly or indirectly our government. So that half of the people get to a point where their money comes from tax dollars. It's the very definition of a Ponzi scheme. Now, if they pass national health care and they nationalize the health care industry, over time you'll see that evolve into complete government control. And at that point, there'll be 60 to 70 percent of Americans directly or indirectly employed through tax dollars. Recycling money creates an unsustainable system. Now, on top of it, and this is the real evil of taxation, what do we do when we tax people? We can't create new programs, and we restrict liberties. There's a big lie out of conservative talk radio. You hear it often, especially about, you heard it a lot more a few years ago over the debate with illegal aliens. 
The lie is, the United States is a nation of laws. We are a nation built on law and order. That is a lie. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, all of our founders didn't risk their lives, risk treason, risk if they lost being hung, so that we could have a nation of laws. We are a nation of liberties at our foundational level. We are a nation of liberties. That's why the main thing that the Constitution does, other than set up the structure of government, is limit the power of government. If we were a nation of laws, if we were built on law, then we would want a Constitution that gave the government all types of authority to make new laws. That would be their primary productive output. Unfortunately today that it is, but our Constitution never made that easy. It took a hundred years of picking, tearing, and kicking to get cut loose about 1910 and really start to ramp up laws, come up with new laws. And even at that point, a lot of new laws required constitutional amendments just to get the laws passed. When they wanted to pass, and when they wanted to make alcohol illegal in this country, do you notice they didn't just pass a law? They had to amend the Constitution to create prohibition. Then they had to amend the Constitution to take away prohibition because it didn't work. It was a very, very bad idea for our nation. But that's what it took at that time to make a law that restricted what Americans could do. Constitutional amendment. No drugs were illegal because the Constitution wouldn't allow for it. Now, if a government is going to create a law, and there is provision for the government to create law and enter treaty and render taxes, what was the purpose of that? as our nation was founded. Was it to create a socialist utopia? No. It was to make sure that there was a general social order. In other words, if we're going to have a nation that values private property rights, and I've paid for a piece of land, and it is mine, and I don't want somebody to come kick me off of it, we need law enforcement and a legal system to provide me that protection. That is a reasonable function of government. If we're going to have a nation where there could be commerce with all, we must have means of commerce. We must have methods of transportation. We must have a common currency. We must have methods of currency exchange. We must have somebody to represent the totality of all the states at a federal level to the rest of the world. We must have a check on that system, a Congress and a Senate. So all of these things were supposed to be done. But when the government grows beyond its intended capacity, it needs fuel. So if the government wants to start up a new law that says that we can't do something that we believe we should be able to do, and they want to enforce that law, they need new money. So the very people that don't want it provide the money to make it happen. It's almost like the old saying of they rip your arm off and then beat you with it. And when you let them go too far, you get to a place today where money is taxed and taxed and taxed and people don't even understand it anymore. Let me put it in perspective for you. You drive to work this morning. You get to work. You haven't earned any money yet, and you think, I haven't paid any taxes yet. Well, you've earned gasoline. You paid the tax on the gasoline just to get to work. 
If you live in a city that has tolls, you pay the toll, that's a tax. To be able to drive the car, you had to buy the car. When you bought the car, you paid a sales tax. In your window is probably a sticker for registration. That is also a tax. In some states, you might still have a vehicle inspection. That is also a tax. Under the guise of making you safe. The people that built your car earned wages, which were taxed. They also drove the work in their cars and their gas. was taxed. Let's not go down that road. Let's stick with you. You get to work. You walk in. You walk by the coffee maker. You pour coffee. It's food. It wasn't taxed. Wrong. Somebody brought the coffee there. Their wages were taxed. The money that they earned, when they spend it, it will be taxed. They had to get there in their car. That was taxed. You walk over to your work area. You flip the light switch in your office, and you walk in, and the electric meter hums. And if you own the company, you pay it. And if you don't own the company, your employer pays a tax on the energy being used to fire up your lights and your computer. You sit at your desk and you work all day, and maybe you're in a position where you buy or sell things for the company or generate re- hopefully generate revenue for the company in some way. While you're sitting there, you're generating revenue for your company, which is taxed as corporate gains, and you're generating income for yourself, which is taxed both with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and direct income taxes. Perhaps you go to lunch during the day and you go out to eat to treat yourself out at a restaurant. You eat food because the food is prepared for you. It's taxed, unlike food from the grocery store. Of course, you drove there spending more tax dollars in gasoline both to get there and get home. The server who waited on you makes a wage and is taxed. The cook who prepared your food makes a wage and it's taxed. In the picture yet. The owner of the restaurant hopefully makes a profit because they're an evil corporation, and then they're taxed. You drive back to work, burning more gas, which is taxed again. Go back into your office, complete the rest of your day, which includes generating more revenue for your company, and more revenue for yourself, which is already taxed in the way that we explained. You walk down the stairs, out to your car, getting your car fired up, you're paying taxes all the way home again. On the way home, you stop at the corner store, because you've had a long freaking day and you're tired, and you pick up a six-pack of beer, because you're Joe Six-Pack, even though you have a white-collar job. You buy the beer, you pay a tax on it because it's alcohol. Give the money to a guy behind the counter. He's been spending his whole day working, generating taxes the same way that you are, and being taxed the same way that you are. At the end of his day, he uses his employee discount to buy his own six-pack of beer, and that money is taxed. That money's actually your money that you spent with his company that they've given back to him, so that money's been taxed twice just today. He goes home, turns on the lights in his house, and begins to pay tax on his energy. Got it? Let's look at the energy. Guy has a coal mine operation in West Virginia because he's an evil carbon-producing coal miner. His coal mine makes, makes money. It's taxed. The coal is transported and sold. It's taxed. The coal gets to the cogeneration plant, which produces electricity. It sells the electricity at a profit, and it's taxed. Pumps it down the line to a distributor who may be different than the generator, who is also taxed on their profit. That energy comes to your house, you pay tax on it again. If you do something productive with it, 
Let's say you have a home-based business, you work after hours, and you make money online, the energy that you use is taxed, and the output from the energy, your profit, is taxed. Tax, 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 tax. It doesn't end. The reason the government can say, as long as we put money into the economy, it's a stimulus, is because it is for them. As long as they put money into the economy and it flows, as long as the dollar is moving, it creates taxes. How do you think the government benefits from cap and trade? If everybody chooses to trade the carbon credit instead of paying the government the penalty, how does the government benefit? What's in it for them? When the money moves, it's taxed. The more it moves, the more it's taxed. Every time it moves, it's taxed. So you're in a system that's like there's a little creature called an antlion, and it builds a nest in the sand, and it sits at the bottom of this little dimpled depression. They were all over Florida when I was a kid. And if an ant runs into that hole, we were evil. We used to go get little ants and throw them in the hole to watch this happen. The ant, as soon as it falls into this sandy little pit, starts running as fast as it can. And the harder it struggles, the more it erodes the surface. And while it's doing this, that antlion is just spitting little clods of sand at it until it falls down to the center, and then it's consumed by the antlion. That's our taxation system. That's how it works. Now, what we can do that the ant can't is we can understand the trap. We can understand how we are empowering the system ourselves. Flip a light switch, pop a top, have dinner out with your wife, pop a cork on a wine bottle, fire up a cigarette, drive your car, empower government. Turn on a light switch, empower government. Turn on your water faucet, for most people, empower government. Flush the toilet, empower government. Do you feel it yet? Do you feel the cold, hard hand of a government that owns you yet? But like the ant, most people just think if I had more, it won't matter. If I work harder, it won't matter. If I make more money, it won't matter. That's the ant running this little ass off. And every time I just rose my income $20,000 a year, new tax bracket, and the ant falls down closer to the ant line of jaws. Where if the ant goes weak and soft, doesn't move. The antlion doesn't know that he's there. If he were to move slowly, he could just walk right up out of the hole because he would have the capacity to understand the system. And unfortunately for the ant, no matter how much we esteem their their preparatory attitude, they don't understand things. They don't have rationalization or an insight. The human is smarter than an ant, so stop. In this case, stop being an ant. When it comes to being prepared, be an ant. When it comes to fighting your government, don't think like an ant, think like a human being. So if the government taxes you, you drive a car, you drive your car less. You find alternative ways to fuel your car, put less gas in, to whatever level is comfortable for your lifestyle. If the government taxes your energy, start producing your own. If the government taxes your food supply, grow your own. The government taxes your beer, brew your own. If you're a smoker, and I don't think you should be, but if you're going to do it, grow tobacco. It ain't hard. This country probably grows more. I don't know if this is true or not. 
this is opinion here, conjecture. I'll tell you when I, when I, when I don't know something. But I would venture that this, this nation probably grows more tobacco than any other nation on the planet. Definitely one of the top producers of tobacco. We can grow tobacco anywhere in this country. It's easy to grow. Idiots did it. Whatever they tax you for, figure out what you can do to eliminate part or all of the tax. Because there's two things at play here that most people do not understand. The first one is easy to understand if you just think about it. And that is the more taxes you pay, the less money you pay. So the less of your effort is able to help you, it goes to help somebody else. It goes to the government to spend at their discretion instead of you to spend at your discretion. So the first damage of taxation to the individual is easy to see. It's the money they take away. But the bigger problem is by empowering the beast, empowering the system, you take away your own liberty by continuing to contribute at high levels through activity, not even productivity. People are not even, they say that the most productive people are the highest taxed in this country. And they're right, but productivity alone is not required to make somebody highly taxed. Activity. People that spend all their money contribute more to the tax base the people that don't spend all their money. The other thing you can do is barter. You can barter. There's all types of systems set up for it today with items. Barter with coins. Even if you use the dollar as a base, trade silver, chunk silver coins, gold, one hand to the other, anonymous, no cash, nothing. Whatever you can do to reduce taxation. Buy second-hand stuff. When you buy used stuff, generally you don't pay sales tax on it. Unless it's a vehicle or a boat. But if I buy a used piece of lawn furniture, I don't pay sales tax on it. It was already taxed. What does this do? Money out of the taxation system? Spend less money, more for you, less for them. Taxation in of itself is self-destructive. So, if our founders were so enlightened, what was taxes supposed to do in the beginning? Well, they knew the danger. Benjamin Franklin said, if the population realizes that they can vote themselves money out of the treasury, that is the end of the republic. But they also knew that the government needed to function. And they needed to do things. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to go out into the world and have commerce with all and alliances with none. Our founders told us to stay away from entangling alliances. They would roll over in shock at our level of involvement, support of the United Nations, the governments that we both aligned ourselves with and alienated ourselves from. They'd be shocked. Don't believe all the bullshit you hear on TV about how evil and crazy the guy in Iran is. Sure, there's a lot of crap about Iran I wouldn't like, and I don't want to live there, and you don't want to live there, and we don't live there. A lot of people live there, and they choose to stay. Not everybody in Iran wants you dead. That's nonsense. We've created hostility through our actions. I don't want to get too political, but you can't deny it. And if you can't accept it with Iran, accept it with somebody else. Accept that somewhere at some time, this nation 
by getting into tight alliances with people we shouldn't be in alliances with, has have created problems for ourselves with people that we should have good relations with. People will say that it's too simple of an idea, that the time that that government was created was 200 plus years ago, and today's society is so much different, but it's really not. People have the same hopes and dreams. But what do you have to think about as a modern survivalist when you ponder these things, when you consider these things? It's just the taxes are bad. No, it's the consequences of what is eventually going to happen to this country with people being taxed like a herd over and over and over again with a system that has no limit to its growth. And every time they put a limit on themselves, as soon as it becomes inconvenient, they just raise the limit. We had a thing called a debt ceiling. National debt shall not go beyond. Right? What did your government just do? They just raised the ceiling. And if we get to another ceiling, what will they do? They'll just raise it again. So they won't put any restrictions on their own ability to borrow money. They won't put any restrictions on their own ability to spend money. They won't put any restrictions on their ability to tax you. And they're hell-bent on trying to fix everything. But most of the problems that we have today, they've created. What that means is that our government is going to destroy our country in time like every other similar government has ever done in the history of the world. And that we have an empire that eventually must collapse upon itself. And there are going to be dire consequences when that occurs. That could happen in 10 years or 100 years, and I do not have a crystal ball, and I cannot tell you when. All I can tell you is you better be prepared for it. You better be prepared that if it takes 100 years to happen, there's going to be a lot of hardship and heartache in between. People talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. It's though one day there was a Roman Empire, and the next day there wasn't. The fall actually took about 300 years. My view is we have a republic that is falling right now. It's not the fall of the republic, it's the falling of the republic. And the republic has been falling since about 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve, it was the first blow. But it's gotten worse and worse and worse. We now have a place where we are taxed every time we turn around. Soon we'll be taxed for breathing in some shape, form, way or another. The government will never, ever quit figuring out how to tax you. If we all build cars like they say they want us to have, that run on free energy, if we actually could build an electric car that was so efficient that just by parking it in the, in the driveway during the day, we could drive it 200 miles a day without even plugging it in, just from solar. That's an ambitious goal. Not likely to happen anytime soon. But if we did that, the first thing that they would do is apply tolls to every single road in America. And they're already going to do it anyway, just because gas tax revenues are down due to more fuel efficiency. A tax once it's put in place never goes away. It's never eliminated. A program put in place by the government is almost never eliminated. It changes form. And if it is eliminated, it's not really. They call it something else and open it up somewhere else. And all it is is about growth. And all you have to do to understand the, the, why this is a natural consequence is work a government job ever in your life where you're responsible for a budget. 
even as a very, very young man in the Army, when I had my own motor pool that I was taking care of, I had a budget. I had a certain amount of money I could spend every year. And toward the end of our budgetary year, I had a captain that would phone me up. Sergeant Spirigo, you have money that you have not spent. Well, yes, sir, but we have all the vehicles in perfect shape, and we don't really need everything. We have good inventories on anything. Our, 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 our TO&E is completely filled out, and uh, everything's operational, and, and I don't really have anything to spend it on. Figure out how to spend it. Figure out how to spend it. Now, sir, I, I, I don't understand. I'm new to this. Why, why do I have to figure out how to spend it? Because if you don't spend it, you won't get it next year. They'll cut your budget. They'll cut the company's budget. And they didn't mean like a company or a company, a military company. They'll cut the battalion's budget. We have to spend every dime they give us, or next year's budget for us will be lower. In other words, in any government-run system, anybody responsible for money is encouraged to spend every dime and penalized for any money that they don't spend. See why it's unsustainable? See why it can't work? See why we've created sustainable poverty and unsustainable government? You feel depressed today? You feel down? You feel weak? Do you feel like you're just being used? Don't feel that way. You're not a cow. You don't have to sit there and let them attach the uh, milk machine to you every day. You're not an ant. You can think and rationalize, and you know the way out of the pit. It's calm, rational, slow approach. It's in your own best self-interest. You know that the best thing that you can do for society is make sure that you yourself are stable. Now, here's the thing. One thing we haven't talked about today is personal debt very much. If you stay out of personal debt, the machine starts to break down immediately. That's why I'm so big on eliminating it. If you don't have credit card payments and a bunch of car payments and a house you can't really afford and so much debt that you're required to go to the milk barn every every day and be milked against your will, if you can choose your level of participation, then you're empowered to start dismantling the machine. Folks, this is what the movie The Matrix was really all about. It wasn't really about a world where machines ruled the world. It was about a system where people don't know that they are the power behind the machine. That is the great lie that we've been told. You think that the machine is so powerful that you can't fight. When the reality is, you're the batteries that run the machine. And unlike a battery that just has to sit there and give power, you have the ability to direct your power or to turn your power off. Don't misunderstand reality. Don't mislead yourself. Don't think the people of this country don't want the government that they have. The majority of the people in this country do want the government that they have. That's why they have it. Why? We could shut it down in two weeks. In two weeks. If everybody just went home for two weeks. No work. No spending. No traveling. Minimal energy consumption. A general strike for two weeks would bring this government to its knees, would make it bend to the yielding of the people overnight. 
people say, well, they'd send out people to make us work. No, they got to stop too. Law enforcement, other than just enough to make sure that nobody's robbing houses, they don't go to work either. 160 million people, 160 million jobs in this country that nobody shows up for for two weeks. It would suck. Going on strike always sucks. But we would shut the government down. We would defund every single program of the government in two weeks. And if they wanted us to start generating power again, trust me, folks, we have their attention. Don't get all excited. We're going to go out and organize this because the people don't want it. That's why they haven't done it. The average person wants exactly what they're getting. Now, they have things that they'll complain about, and they'll say the government should be smaller, and we should spend less. But if you start going line by line and go, can we cut this? And if it affects them, the answer is no. So what are we going to cut? Everybody objects to everything that anybody ever says they want to be cut. And you're out there going, no, I don't. Well, you're the minority, the extreme minority. Another thing I've heard from people today I want to make sure I talk about real briefly today. So I've heard from people that say, I hate it when you say you're government. Because this isn't my government. I didn't vote for these people. Obama's not my president. I didn't vote for him. The, the congressman I have, I didn't vote for. This is not my government. It is your government. It is your government. Think of it this way. You're on the board of directors at a company. They want to hire a new strategic director of marketing. The board has to vote on that level of a decision because it's a director level position. There's eight people on the board. You're on the board, too. You and one other guy say, I don't like something about this guy's resume, his past. Do you vote no? Six of the people on the board vote yes, according to the company's bylaws. Four to two, is, or six to two is good. The guy gets hired. He gets a job. Is he not your employee? Is he still not accountable to you as a stakeholder and shareholder in the company and as a board member? Even though you've been overridden, by your fellow board members, are you still not entitled to see what his productivity is, to analyze his productivity, and to lobby the other members of the board if you are proven right to correct the wrong and get rid of him? Is he still not your employee? Well, when you don't vote for a congressman, all that's happened is your board of directors overrules you. He's still your employee. He still works for you and he's still accountable to you. And when you say that's not my president, that's not my congressman, you're abdicating your responsibility as an employer. And trust me, buddy, you're employing them because it's your money that funds all the bullshit that they do. So what do I want out of you? What do I want my audience to do? Number one, I want personal responsibility in every American. I want you to call your congressional clown and your two senators at a minimum once a month. And I want you to tell them what you're unhappy about and what you're happy about. Notice, I didn't tell you call them and tell them you want this or you want that. You tell them what you want. I believe in our system. And I believe if our people would exercise their rights and their power within our system, it would work even today. So I don't have to tell you what to say. And if you believe completely the opposite from me, you tell them that. But get on the daggone phone with them once a month, two minutes for three people, six minutes of your life. If you won't do that, I'm sorry. You're a crappy American. And if you haven't been doing it, don't be offended by that. Just fix it. And if you say, hey, man, and they don't listen, quit whining. 
Even if they don't listen, pick up the phone and do it. What is it going to cost you? You probably have extra cell phone minutes anyway. Put their numbers in your cell phone so it makes it easy. And when you hear something that's bullshit going on, pick the cell phone up and call them. Two, figure out how you can pay less taxes. Get a good accountant. Produce some of your own stuff. Order by second hand. I don't care. Pay less taxes into the machine. Three, get your ass out of debt if you're in debt. Don't tell me why you need a credit card. That's bullshit. You don't need a credit card. Stay away from credit cards. Only pay car loans if you absolutely have to due to certain driving requirements that you have and pay your car loan off faster than intended. The only other acceptable debt is mortgage on a home. School debt? People ask me about, well, what about student loans? What about student loans? All right, I'll tell you how I'm okay with you taking a student loan. Get a job. Work your ass off. Do your first two years at a community college for a tenth of the cost. And when you've gotten that far and you have no debt and you've saved up some money and you want to finance your last two years of school and you know what you want to do and you have enough of a foundation, you know you're going to make it through school now, take a loan. And take as little as you possibly can. Get every scholarship and every grant you can find. There are so many scholarships out there. And if you have two years of school behind you already, a lot of them are easier to get your hands on. There's books and databases. Apply for them all. Look at it as a job. As you're finishing your, your, your sophomore year at community college, you should be applying for 10 scholarships a day going into your junior year out of university and only borrow what you need. If we have more people doing that, we'd have better, smarter, better prepared students coming out of our college system. So stay away from debt. Personal responsibility. Tax elimination, debt avoidance and or elimination, produce your own food, be prepared, and the whole system starts to change. Because if you want to change this nation, first you have to change yourself. Going to tea parties won't change the nation. Carrying a picket sign won't change the nation. Yelling and screaming won't change the nation. Forwarding an email as though it's something new when it's 10 years old won't change a nation. Changing who you are. Understanding your birthright as a human and living to that potential under your own control, not the control of others, will change you. You change yourself and the whole system starts to change around you. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life in times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.